welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the third edition of our ISDS Horizon Scanning podcast series. My name's Susie Savage, and I'm a partner in the International Arbitration Team based in Reedsmith's London office. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined once again by my colleague, Patrick Beale, an international arbitration partner also based in the London office. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Susie. It's a real pleasure to be back doing this podcast with you. Although it's only been five months since our last conversation, there have been some significant developments on many of the topics we've discussed previously. They have indeed, and I really look forward to discussing them with you. Let's start with the Energy Charter Treaty, a matter in the ISDS headlines at the moment. When we discussed the modernisation of the ECT in our last podcast, we anticipated that the reforms agreed in principle in June 2022 would be adopted at the meeting of the ECT conference, which took place on the 22nd and 23rd of November in Mongolia. Mongolia, as I'm sure many of you know, is the current chair of the ECT conference. The modernised treaty would redefine investment to include new technologies such as carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, biomass and synthetic fuels, with a view to encouraging investment in renewables and low-carbon energy. It would also allow members to exclude protection for fossil fuels. In this regard, the EU and UK intend to phase out investment protection for fossil fuels so that existing investments would lose protection after 10 years, as would any new fossil fuel investments made after the 15th of August 2023, with some limited exceptions. The updated treaty would also include a provision to reaffirm and strengthen the right of states to regulate in the interests of legitimate public policy objectives, such as protection of the environment, including climate change mitigation and adaptation and public health. Things haven't quite, though, gone to plan there, have they, Patrick? No, they haven't. And since we last discussed this, a number of EU states have expressed their intention to withdraw from the ECT, including France, Spain, the Netherlands, Poland, Germany and Slovenia. Belgium and Austria are also contemplating doing so. These countries believe that the modernisation doesn't go far enough and that the updated treaty remains inconsistent with the objectives of the Paris Climate Agreement. So what does this really mean for the future of the ECT? Well, the the upshot is that at the meeting on the 22nd of November, the contracting parties delayed the vote on whether to adopt the modernised treaty. The Energy Charter Secretariat has since announced that it expects the treaty's signatories to hold an ad hoc meeting in April next year, again hosted by Mongolia, to finalise the discussions on the adoption of the treaty amendments. It's expected that the EU Commission which led the modernisation negotiations, will now seek to reach a compromise with the parties that are threatening to withdraw. And if those discussions aren't successful and countries decide to formally withdraw, how would they go about that? Well, if any of the countries threatening to withdraw wish to do so, they have to give written notice to Portugal, which serves as the treaty's depository. Withdrawal then takes effect one year after receipt of the notice, And then if I'm right, at that stage, the sunset clause would kick in. 
you, you raise a very interesting point there, Susie. The sunset clause in the existing treaty provides that protection for investments made prior to withdrawal continues for 20 years after a country withdraws. This means that withdrawing from the ECT might have the paradoxical effect of extending the protection available to investors. Can you please explain what you quite mean by that, Patrick? Okay, under the sunset clause in the unreformed ECT, withdrawing states will be exposed to claims relating to existing investments for another 20 years. That's 10 years longer than the phase-out period under the modernisation proposals. To address this issue, some have advocated that the withdrawing parties conclude an agreement between themselves that renders the sunset clause inoperative. However, leaving aside whether such an agreement is even compatible with the ECT itself, it could only be effective as between the parties to it. So, investors from ECT contracting states not a party to such an agreement would remain protected for 20 years. That's really interesting, and we'll keep developments relating to the ECT under close review. Turning now to domestic matters in the UK, as we discussed last time, the Law Commission is carrying out a review of the 1996 English Arbitration Act. Since then, the Law Commission published its consultation paper on proposed reforms in September of this year. The consultation paper identifies a number of potential areas for review, including confidentiality, independence of arbitrators, powers of summary disposal and challenges to jurisdiction. Following discussions with a wide range of stakeholders and its own research, the Law Commission concludes in the consultation paper that the Act still works very well and that, in fact, there's no need for extensive reform. So I think we can expect pragmatic and incremental reform rather than wholesale change. Well, it will be interesting to see the final recommendations. And can listeners contribute to the consultation if they want to? Absolutely. Any listeners interested in contributing to the review can do so until the 15th of December through the Law Commission website at lawcom.gov.uk and by clicking on Find Open Consultations. The Law Commission intends to publish its final recommendations by mid-2023 and, of course, we'll be keeping a close eye on the developments as they arise. Thank you, Susie. And to America now, and an update on the decision of the US Supreme Court in ZF v Luxshare that we reported on last time. You'll recall, Susie, that the court concluded that Section 1782 of the United States Code couldn't be used to obtain disclosure of documents from persons located in the US in support of foreign private commercial arbitration or ad hoc investor state arbitration. The Supreme Court held that Section 1782 could only be invoked where the foreign tribunal was a governmental or intergovernmental adjudicative body. That left open the question of whether Section 1782 could be deployed in support of ICSID arbitrations, with with commentators arguing that, given its nature, ICSID is an intergovernmental adjudicative body. In the first decision on the issue since then, on 27 October, the New York Eastern District Court ruled that an ICSID tribunal hearing the claim of a Chinese investor against Malta lacked governmental authority and therefore did not qualify as a foreign or international tribunal under Section 1782 of the United States Code. So how did the judge reach that conclusion? The judge reasoned 
that notwithstanding that the ICSID convention has over 150 member states, including Malta and China, he couldn't accept the claimant's arguments that Malta and China intended their BIT to imbue the ICSID tribunal with governmental authority. The judge said the fact that the BIT lists ICSID as just one of several options an investor could choose to resolve a dispute, including the domestic courts, undermined the contention that the ICSID panel had governmental authority. The judge also observed that Section 1782 was intended to promote assistance and cooperation, or comity, between the courts of the United States and those of foreign countries, but that ICSID arbitral tribunals have no authority to provide reciprocal discovery assistance for proceedings in the United States. Does this close the door on the use of Section 1782 in ICSID arbitrations? Well, in short, not for now. The investor has indicated an intention to file an objection to the judge's decision. So this certainly isn't the last word on whether Section 1782 can be used in support of ICSID arbitration. And we'll be sure to report on any further developments in our next episode. Thank you. So now I want to return to Africa. In our last podcast, we discussed the Model Investment Treaty for African States, published in July by the Africa Arbitration Academy. Today, I want to mention the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, or AFCFTA. This agreement created the world's largest continental free trade area by number of countries when trading under the deal officially commenced on the 1st of January 2021. And whereas the Model Investment Treaty for African States aims to promote sustainable investment in Africa by non-African investors, the AFCFTA aims to boost intra-African trade and investment. Negotiations concerning the protocol and investment, which include the investor state dispute settlement provisions, are ongoing. The state's parties had two rounds of negotiations in September, with a proposed final text for adoption expected in the coming weeks. Do we know what that protocol might look like? We do indeed, Patrick. An early draft of the protocol reveals that, in line with recent trends, it aims to strike a balance between investment protection and the right of African states to regulate for legitimate social and economic policy objectives and to comply with international obligations. Investors will be required to comply with laws and policies to protect human rights, labour rights, the environment and indigenous people, and to promote and enforce anti-corruption and anti-bribery measures. Interestingly, the draft protocol omits the fair and equitable treatment, FET standard, and instead incorporates a more limited concept of standards in administrative and judicial treatment. That is interesting. And what is it that will happen to existing BITs between African states when the protocol comes into effect? Well, once the protocol is adopted, it's anticipated that intra-African BITs will be terminated by express agreement contained in the protocol itself, subject to applicable sunset provisions, unsurprisingly. Further, existing regional investment agreements will be given a period of five years to achieve alignment with the protocol. And uh, for those who aren't aware, Reed Smith has a thriving Francophone Africa ISDS practice based in Paris. Meanwhile, Uncertral Working Group 3 continues its consideration of possible reforms to ISDS. At its meeting in Vienna in September 2022, the Working Group considered, among other things, draft provisions for the selection and appointment of tribunal members 
to the standing multilateral investment tribunal that's been proposed and acknowledged that this would end the practice of party-appointed arbitrators. In addition, the delegates largely agreed that they wanted to pursue a multilateral instrument for ISDS reform with a view to improving transparency, efficiency and consistency in decision-making. Discussions concerning the possible structure of such an instrument were put on hold, though, given that a number of the reform elements are still being developed. Delegates also considered the relationship of the proposed instrument with existing and future investment agreements. And another topic of discussion was the assessment of damages and compensation, wasn't it? It certainly was. Concerns have been expressed that the assessment of damages is increasingly complex and time-consuming isn't dealt with consistently, and that the high amount of compensation awarded undermines states' ability to regulate. Tribunals' use of the discounted cash flow method to value investments was an issue frequently cited by delegates, arguing that the use of this valuation method was particularly problematic for early-phase projects. The working group will therefore consider guidance on the valuation method in cases of early-stage investments without a history of business operations. The working group also discussed the draft code of conduct, the key provisions of which you outlined, Susie, in our last podcast. What more do we know about that? The meeting of the working group revealed divergent views on the measures required to prevent so-called double-hatting, i.e., where arbitrators in ISDS cases play other roles, such as counsel or expert, in subsequent cases. There was particular disagreement over whether there should be a time period following the conclusion of a dispute, during which an arbitrator would be prevented from undertaking roles as legal representative or party-appointed expert in another dispute involving the same measure or measures, the same or related party or parties, or the same provisions of the same treaty. The issue remains unresolved. The next session of the working group will be held at the end of January next year, and will focus primarily on the Code of Conduct. Thank you, Susie. I now want to cast listeners' minds back to our first podcast a year ago, in which we considered the impact on ISDS of emergency measures taken by governments in response to the pandemic. Leaving aside China, COVID-19 has, thankfully, receded from the headlines since then. However, in a poll of more than 100 UK in-house lawyers conducted for EY, Respondents cited ISDS claims as the second most likely type of disputes to arise from the pandemic in the coming months and years. And so you'll recall, Susie, that in our December 2021 podcast, we reported on the first ISDS claim filed in relation to a government's response to the pandemic. The exit claim was brought by ADP and Vinci against Chile concerning the concession to operate Santiago's International Airport, and that claim is currently ongoing. Have there been any other claims? Well, other claims have been threatened, uh, for instance, by a toll road concession holder against Peru, which suspended collection of tolls on highways to ease the financial burden on its citizens caused by the pandemic. But the deluge of COVID-19 related cases that some anticipated hasn't materialised, at least for now. So why do you think that is then? Several possible reasons have been suggested. Uh, First of all, corporations bringing such a claim risk reputational damage, as governments faced with an unprecedented situation did what they thought was in the best interest of their citizens. 
Second, investment treaties often include a cooling off period of typically six and up to 18 months, during which time the investor and the government must try to settle their dispute. Only once the cooling off period is over can investors register their claim. Thirdly, many states put in place measures to support businesses and avoid a wave of bankruptcies. But with such support schemes now coming to an end, investors might seek alternative ways to cover their financial losses. So it remains to be seen whether the anticipated wave of pandemic-related claims actually emerges. And with that, it concludes this episode of Arbitral Insights. I hope it's been a useful and practical review of recent expected developments in investment arbitration. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you'll tune in to the next edition of our Arbitral Insights podcast series, and especially to the next ISDS Horizon Scanning podcast. To find out more about Reed Smith's ISDS capabilities in London, Paris, the US and elsewhere, do please visit reedsmith.com. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.